video games. Alvir May. The people who make them. The stories behind it all. You're listening to Random Access Memories. By Ron's Pies. Enjoy the show. The PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One marked the beginning of the eighth generation of consoles. Let's say, hypothetically, you wanted to talk about the entire industry and impact of the eighth generation leading up to where we are today, which is on the cusp of the ninth console generation. Where would you start? Where should you start? It might be simplest to start on the day each console was released onto the world, starting on November 18th, 2012. But you don't get the full context by starting on the exact day the generation began. In reality, the generation began years before that date. Planning, research and development, company finances, hardware manufacturing, development kits, software development, studio management, market distribution, retailers, there's a lot that needs to go into consideration before that fateful day when a new console graces the hands of gamers around the world. So again I ask, where do you start? Do you start when the first stirrings of new hardware first breached the ears of the game's press? You start in the year 2000, when the very first Xbox was revealed by Bill Gates and Dwayne The Rock Johnson himself? Or maybe 1995, when the PlayStation made a name for itself at the Consumer Electronics Show, the expo that would eventually become E3? Or what about all the way back in 1889 when Nintendo was making playing cards and kids' toys? If you want the full context going into a generation, you may as well start at the very, very beginning, right? There are dozens of ways you could start the story of the 8th generation of consoles, but I'm going to begin on May 8th, 2006, the day when Sony Computer Entertainment's then Vice CEO Kaz Hirai uttered an infamous phrase that would shake the gaming industry to its core. 599 US dollars, 599 US dollars, 599 US dollars, 599 US dollars. Welcome to Random Access Memories, a gaming podcast dedicated to the stories behind video games. This podcast is an in-depth look at a variety of the different franchises, developers, and studios around the world that form the greatest entertainment medium in the world. History, conversations, fun facts about franchises you thought you knew everything about, this is Random Access Memories. Random Access Memories is a podcast produced by Ron's Pies, a YouTube channel dedicated to in-depth looks at video games. If you like the podcast, please follow the show on your podcast podcast distribution platform of choice, leave a positive review, and subscribe to the channel. With that, please enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 10 of Random Access Memories, the season one finale. That's right, in case you missed the last episode, I'm capping the season off right here. I'm just way too busy with moving and other projects to do this on a consistent basis, so I just wanted to take a bit, write some scripts, maybe finalize some guests, and make sure the next season is airtight before I start publishing any episodes. But for now, I am your writer and host, Wade Ronspies, and I've actually been sitting on this script for a while now, but I wanted to save it for the right time, and that time is now. The current generation is winding down, the new generation is starting up soon, so I wanted to commemorate, in my opinion, one of the best generations in the history of video games. There will be discussion down the road about the impact of the generation and why it was important, but this episode of Random Access Memories is dedicated entirely to the context leading into the Wii U, PS4, and Xbox One. How they came to be, why they are the way they are, the plans that went into making the industry the place it is today, and everything in between. 
This episode doesn't exactly chronicle the entire generation, nor does it cover the Nintendo Switch, because if I wanted to do an all-encompassing retrospective on the entire generation, we'd be here all day and it would take me a while to edit. And I may also be working on an actual video for that later down the line once I get settled after I move. Anyway, so without any further ado, Let's flash back to 2006. The Xbox 360 was already out and doing well. The games lineup in 2006 for what was then considered next gen was fairly limited, but the Xbox 360 was already pretty well revered for hosting games like Call of Duty 2 and The Elder Scrolls 4 Oblivion, as well as its stunning viral marketing campaigns. Microsoft had a hit, all while Sony was struggling to convince consumers that its infamous price tag of 599 US dollars was worth it. It's also worth noting that the PS3 also featured a 20 gigabyte HDD model for $499, but in hindsight, 20 gigs wasn't going to get you much in the long run. Even 60 was pretty limiting by the end of that generation. The PS3 was more expensive, it was bulkier, and had significantly fewer games, and was notoriously more difficult to develop for than its direct competitor, the Xbox 360. There were a variety of different reasons why the PlayStation 3 was so expensive. It had a built-in Blu-ray player, Bluetooth compatibility, gyroscopic controls, a pre-installed hard drive, but there was one key component to the PS3 that made it both significantly more expensive to produce and significantly more difficult to work with, something called a cell processor. A cell processor is a multi-core microprocessor designed to maximize the efficiency and acceleration of computing power. Development of the cell broadband engine architecture, or just cell or cell processor for short, began in 2001 in a coalition between Sony, Toshiba, and IBM with a budget of around $400 million. This wasn't something just meant for the PS3. This was something the coalition hoped would make its way into a variety of consumer-grade products. The idea was that Cell would maximize power efficiency, meaning more power using less energy, prioritizing data transfer speeds over latency, and it would simplify program code, leading to faster computational throughput. Or, in layman's terms, it had the potential for some serious power without needing to flex its muscles too hard. The PlayStation 3 was the first commercial use of Cell, after Sony in 2005 confirmed the specs that would be used for the system. Cell is what would prove to be the source of many of Sony's woes throughout the seventh console generation. While the processor was uniquely powerful, it was considerably more difficult to develop for, and it significantly raised the manufacturing costs for the system, which is how Sony arrived at the infamous price of 599 US dollars. In fact, even at that price, Sony was losing around $300 per sale of the PS3. Things were not looking good. However, while the cell processor was notoriously difficult to develop for, certain studios that managed to extract the full potential of cell ended up with some staggeringly impressive results, such as Killzone 2 from Guerrilla Games and The Last of Us from Naughty Dog. But despite the potential for great software, the launch lineup just couldn't justify the price to most consumers. In 2007 alone, the Xbox 360 nearly doubled the sales of the PlayStation 3. The console war between Xbox and PlayStation wasn't even a war at all. It was a German blitzkrieg right around the Maginot Line right into the heart of France. Except, unlike in the French in this World War II analogy, Sony did not surrender right then and there. The cell processor was becoming cheaper and cheaper to manufacture, so a light was beginning to form at the end of the tunnel in terms of manufacturing costs and potential future business strategies. But there's one other faction in this console war that would end up swallowing both sides without even a second thought. Nintendo. The Nintendo Wii was an instant success when it launched in November 2006, becoming one of the hottest hot ticket items in the history of hot ticket items. Kids wanted them, gamers wanted them, hell, even grandmas and grandpas wanted them. The revolutionary motion controls were a sight to behold, and everyone wanted to try their hand at bowling or tennis from home. The idea was crazy enough to pique the interest of the gaming industry, but it was also accessible and interesting enough to grab the attention of the common consumer. 
The Wii had massive broad appeal, and by the time the seventh generation was ending in 2013, Nintendo had sold over 100 million Wiis worldwide. For comparison, the PS3 topped out at around 87 million, and the Xbox 360 around 84 million, as of 2018. Despite the thorough spanking of the other two manufacturers though, the Wii was still about 55 million sales away from the top selling console of all time, the PlayStation 2. The astounding success of the PlayStation 2 is probably why Sony thought they could get away with selling the PlayStation 3 for as much as they did. From their perspective, the raw value of the hardware and the name brand association should have been enough, but it wasn't. PlayStation wasn't Apple. They got cocky and it blew up in their face. Even though the PS3 would ultimately surpass lifetime Xbox 360 sales at the end of the generation, thanks to significant price drops in the following years and a slate of truly impressive software. But when it was time to start thinking about the PlayStation 4, Sony was coming right off of, by far, their worst console launch. Things had to change, and they had to change as soon as humanly possible. PlayStation couldn't let another launch like the PlayStation 3's happen again. They made their way back to success by the skin of their teeth, and another launch like that would be absolutely devastating. Meanwhile, the reverse was happening over at Nintendo and Microsoft. They were falling into the same trap Sony had fallen into in 2006, and they had no idea it was coming. The launches of their two newest consoles were incredible successes, and they had no reason to believe that success wouldn't continue. The battle strategies were forming at each company's headquarters. Sony would attempt to learn from their mistakes with the PS3, Xbox would try to venture into new areas to create a universal entertainment system, and Nintendo would try to continue the success of the Wii while attempting to innovate in new ways with more relevant hardware specs. It was still extremely early into the seventh generation of consoles, 2008 in fact, but the stage was already being set for next gen. It was now time to set those plans into motion. Now, you might be wondering why I spent that much time on last-gen consoles, but you really don't get the PS4 without the failure of the PS3, and you don't get the Xbox One or the Wii U without the hubris that Microsoft and Nintendo were developing at the time following their incredible success. So, now that we understand the context of each manufacturer coming off the launch of each of their consoles, we can start to understand the whys and whens that come with planning for a new generation of consoles. However, sometimes, as I'm sure we're all aware thanks to the past year, Things happen that are outside of your control that can throw a wrench in your whole grand scheme. In 2008, a huge financial crisis shook the global economy, the greatest recession in history since the Great Depression in the 1920s and 30s. It was a monumental international event, and that's putting it mildly. Every single person in business was impacted in some way during this time. And if you're a multi-million dollar company currently making plans for a huge coordinated hardware and software launch, marketing campaigns, and retailer distribution, something like this would definitely set those plans back a bit. Many actually debate if the next-gen consoles would have come out sometime in 2011 or 2012 had there not been such a monumental international financial collapse. When you look at the hardware release trends up to that point, it's actually kind of crazy that there was eight years between the Xbox 360 and the Xbox One. Even the six years between the Wii and Wii U was pretty intense. Only five years separated the PS1 from the PS2 and the Nintendo 64 from the GameCube. So yes, I also think the Wii U, PS4, and Xbox One would have released one or even two years sooner had there not been a financial crisis in 2008. Nintendo began meetings to discuss what would become the Wii U in 2008, according to an Iwata Asks episode from E3 2011. The Wii U was conceived as something intended to be in more direct competition with Sony and Microsoft. Nintendo president Satoru Iwata said he was disappointed with the perception surrounding the Wii, with many feeling like it was a casual console or something quote-unquote real gamers couldn't enjoy. Nintendo wanted a more traditional console that still retained some of the innovation Nintendo was known for, something with some of the now standard features that the Wii was missing, like 
high definition resolution. The idea was to have a console with even broader appeal than the Wii, something aimed at the common consumer, but something that could also support the kinds of games hardcore gamers expected. To power their first HD console, Nintendo worked with AMD, IBM, and Renaissance using something called the Espresso CPU and a Latte GPU based on a Radeon R700. And the coffee references don't stop there. Satoru Iwata also claimed that the idea for the touchpad that would become synonymous with the Wii U arose from the limitations of the Wii. Specifically, how the Wii used the disc tray of the console itself for notifications. Iwata stated, quote, it was only able to say whether it had new information or not, so it had limits on what it could do. Miyamoto added on by saying, quote, We started from the notion of, it would be nice if there was a small monitor of sorts other than the TV, where we could always see the status of the Wii console. So it's easy to see then how they arrived at the integral touchpad built into the gamepad. IGN reported on rumors regarding the nicknamed Wii HD as early as October 2008, specifically mentioning the Wii's lack of HD visuals and viable storage space and that the next console would retain the Wii name in some way. In that IGN article, it stated that Nintendo was tripling their R&D budget at that time, heavily hinting that they were deep into pre-production on a new console. But the article also notes that they didn't expect to see the console anytime soon due to the Wii's immense success. Most of the game's press assumed the next Nintendo console was due out in 2011. In fact, that's probably what Nintendo thought too, until the international economic conditions changed. A website by the name of What They Play, which is where IGN received their information from, stated that multiple software developers were receiving presentations directly from Nintendo, with a focus on what gamers would quote, hold in their hands and interact with, rather than the console itself. So fall 2008 is when Nintendo was solidifying what would become the Wii U. It's also worth noting that around this time, Nintendo would have been working on the 3DS as well. Some of the ideas that may have been intended for the Wii HD actually ended up going into the 3DS. Iwata expressed interest in making Nintendo's next home console compatible with 3D TVs, but decided against it unless the market for 3D TVs increased. So it makes sense then that instead of waiting for consumers to buy 3D TVs, Nintendo just decided to make a handheld console with a 3D screen built right into it. It wasn't until 2010 when Nintendo themselves would finally start opening up a little bit about the successor to the Wii. At an investors meeting, Iwata said they were indeed working on a new home console. After the reveal of the Nintendo 3DS, Nintendo of America COO Reggie fils told CNN that, quote, we've not said publicly what the next thing for us will be in the home console space, but based on what we've learned on 3D, likely that won't be it. Nintendo figured that forcing people to wear glasses or goggles to experience 3D just wasn't happening, and considering it was essentially impossible to have glasses-free 3D on home TVs, 3D gaming on a home console was simply out of the question for Nintendo, especially after their infamous 1995 console, the Virtual Boy. In 2011, the year the Wii U was originally meant to come out, a new name for the Wii HD started making waves in headlines, Project Cafe, presumably named after its espresso CPU and latte GPU. It was in April that year that details started to unofficially emerge about Nintendo's latest project. Sources told multiple outlets that the controller for this new console would have a 6-inch screen built into it and that gamers would be able to stream games from the console to the controller. The new system would also be backwards compatible and that Nintendo would hold their grand unveiling at E3 2011. That same month, April, Nintendo seemed to confirm all reports by officially announcing that Project Cafe would indeed be presented and playable at E3 2011 and then released in 2012. It was finally time to see what the rumors and reports were leading up to for months and months and the beginning of a new generation of consoles. On June 7th, 2011, the Wii U was finally revealed. The E3 conference began with a live orchestra to celebrate the 25th anniversary of The Legend of Zelda, 
predating Sony's infamous orchestrated 2016 E3 conference by five years. In this conference, Nintendo of America's Reggie Fizeme introduced the console by saying, it's a system we will all enjoy together, but also one that's tailor-made for you. It's that sentiment that added the U to the end of the console's name. But that U was also a source of great confusion to consumers. Nintendo was clear in its E3 press conference that this was a new home console, but to many people around the world who didn't watch the conference, it just seemed like the Wii U was just the new controller. There was no sign of the console itself except for a tiny glimpse during its promotional reveal video. All the focus was on the gamepad. I couldn't be the only one who heard about the Wii U and thought it was just an add-on for the Wii. I mean, it still had Wii in the title, right? Not to mention, some of the first games we saw for the Wii U were games that already existed on the Wii, like New Super Mario Bros and Wii Sports, plus the frequent use of the Wiimote in the video too. I don't think it was unreasonable for someone to hear the word Wii U, see the gamepad, and think it was just a cool new add-on for the console that was still selling millions every year. The Wii U reveal video also showed a never-before-seen Legend of Zelda game that would never see the light of day. In hindsight, it's clear the video was purely meant to demonstrate the potential of the Wii U rather than what was actually coming to the Wii U. Just a tech demo sadly. President Satoru Iwata also clarified that the Wii U was not a portable console that could play home console games on the go. For that, we'd have to wait for a little thing called the Nintendo Switch. The only actual game announcements made for the Wii U came from third-party studios, except for an in-development Super Smash Bros. game for both 3DS and Wii U. The reception coming out of E3 2011 was fairly mixed. The games press was impressed with the capabilities of the Wii U, but they were concerned with how much the new hardware would cost and how much support it would receive in the long run due to its inherently unorthodox nature. At next year's E3, at Nintendo's last in-person E3 press conference, all was confirmed. The console specs and a launch lineup that included New Super Mario Bros. U, Nintendo Land, Zombie U, Assassin's Creed 3, Call of Duty Black Ops 2, and more. And Nintendo also announced Pikmin 3. And that's about it, really. The presentation also featured a full breakdown and explanation of the Wii U gamepad, marketed as a familiar controller that lets you play away from the TV, and with a stylus. The user interface was also revealed. In June, what a concept. The UI was revealed to heavily feature one component of Nintendo's planned online infrastructure, Miiverse. Miiverse was essentially Nintendo's own custom-made social media platform where players could share status updates, screenshots, and more, and where developers could share updates to existing Wii U games. In the long run, the Miiverse wasn't exactly a lauded feature, but it was a pretty fascinating harbinger for the social interconnectivity we would also see in the Wii U's direct competitors in the future. And you'd think this would be the place they'd announce the release date for the Wii U, but that would actually happen a few months later in September, using the PS5 and Xbox Series X tactic, I see. Either way, November 18th, 2012 was the date, and the Wii U would actually get two models. For $299, you got the white 8GB Wii U. For $349, you got a black deluxe Wii U with 32GB of storage, and a subscription for the short-lived Nintendo Online Premium Service, and a copy of Nintendo Land. Around 400,000 Wii U's were sold in the first week, which was... A promising start, but as we know, the Wii U would go on to become one of Nintendo's biggest hardware failures. As I said in the intro to this episode, I'm not going to go over every single detail over the generation, just the context leading up to each console's release. So with the Wii U out in the wild in this timeline, it's time to move on to the next next-gen console to be released, the PlayStation 4. I already discussed the details leading into the birth of the PS4 in 2008, the ridiculous production costs and insane price of the PS3. The PS4 began life as a lesson learned from the failings of the PS3. The PS3 was hard to develop for, it was too expensive, and even though it eventually overtook the Xbox 360 in sales, by 2008, things weren't looking too promising. 
PlayStation immediately knew something had to dramatically change, and that change would be symbolized in their next generation. With the PS3, they could try to change their image by slicing the PS3's price in half and producing a legendary slate of games like Uncharted 2, Heavy Rain, Infamous 2, God of War 3, The Last of Us, and more. But you can only do so much when the console was essentially designed to fail on a hardware level. Third-party developers just didn't want to develop for it. So even though the PS3 was technically more powerful than the Xbox 360, most developers preferred to work on the Xbox. But with the PS4, Mark Cerny, Jim Ryan, and all of PlayStation went directly to a variety of different studios to ask for their direct input on what they'd want to see from a new PlayStation. The PS4 would be built on an architectural level to suit third-party developers, righting the wrongs of the PS3. To power their new developer-focused console, PlayStation collaborated with AMD to create something called an APU, an accelerated processing unit, which is a CPU and a GPU put together. The APU is called Jaguar, and not the Atari, and had a 1.84 teraflop GPU, 16 times the amount of RAM that the PS3 had, 500 gigabytes of storage, and even HDR compatibility down the line. The PS4 would have a bevy of new quality of life features, voice commands, second screen capabilities with the PS Vita, rest mode, the ability to livestream directly to Twitch, and even a button built directly onto the controller that allowed players to take screenshots and save videos that they could then upload directly to Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube. Now, I'm not saying this was inspired by Nintendo's Miiverse, but it was a pretty fantastic feature that seemed weird and unnecessary at the time, but ended up aging fantastically. And speaking of the controller, the PS4 would see the debut of the DualShock 4 and the first major redesign of the DualShock since the first one on PS1. The select button was removed, or rather, should I say, replaced, by a touchpad placed right in the middle of the controller. The touchpad was essentially a giant select button, but one with a bit more utility. And also at launch, a new camera for the PS4, but at launch, its only real capabilities were to work with a free game called The Playroom and for live streaming. But considering what we know now of Sony's later plans, perhaps it was an early call for PSVR. Before the world found out about the PS4, it was known as Orbis and development kits for Orbis started shipping internationally to developers in 2012, contrary to some reports in 2011 that the console itself would be released in 2012. There were even stirrings that the PS4 would be called PlayStation Orbis based on the codename and due to the fact that the number 4 is actually considered unlucky or even cursed in Japan. 4 in Japanese can be pronounced the same way as death, she. Because of this, there are even some buildings in Japan that don't even show the number 4 on elevators or floor plans. So it's not insane to think that maybe Sony, a Japanese company, would be reluctant to name their company-saving console after an unlucky number. Anyway, there were almost no leaks or reports about the PS4 until its official reveal in early 2013. All we knew is that they had something coming out of the oven soon, despite having worked on it since 2008. So presumably, both Sony and Microsoft began work on the PS5 and the Series X in 2015. On February 20th, 2013, the PlayStation 4 was revealed to the public. Remember when they did console reveals in February instead of June and July? Crazy. It was at this event where they announced their dev-friendly initiative and revealed a ton of games that would be released around launch and throughout the PS4's life cycle, starting with a classic, Knack. It's fun to meme on Knack, I know, but the entire idea was to showcase the power of the PS4 by making a protagonist built from individual objects and a game with tons and tons of particle effects. Other games announced or shown include Killzone Shadowfall by Guerrilla Games, Drive Club by Evolution Studios, Infamous Second Son by Sucker Punch Productions, The Witness by Jonathan Blow, developer of Braid, Dreams by Media Molecule, Deep Down by Capcom, which never came out, and perhaps most notably, Destiny, the first project from Bungie after Halo. 
No release date or pricing info was revealed, but the PlayStation 4 was now officially in the public consciousness, complete with our first ever look at in-engine next-gen footage. In-engine was in quotes there, by the way. But it was E3 2013 that really cemented the PS4 as the future console of choice in the eyes of many. In a legendary press conference that showcased games like Kingdom Hearts 3, Assassin's Creed 4, and more, this press conference is probably most known for one thing. For instance, PlayStation 4 won't impose any new restrictions on the use of PS4 games. Guess that's a good thing. In addition, PlayStation 4 disc-based games don't need to be connected online to play. Amidst rumors that the next generation of Xbox would require online check-ins, wouldn't allow for used games to be played, and would cost $500 to buy, PlayStation absolutely dunked on every single negative aspect of their competitor by saying, we're not doing that, not only are we not doing that, our console's also going to be $100 cheaper. I'm very proud to announce that PlayStation 4 will be available at $399. chills every time. After this conference, it was clear that PlayStation learned from not only every mistake that they made in the last generation, they were also avoiding the mistakes their competitors were making. They made it clear that they were the ones listening, that they were the ones worth investing in for this generation. It was a slaughter compared to the tone deafness of everything surrounding the Xbox One. The next-gen console war was over before it even started, and despite setting it up to be that way, PlayStation was just as surprised as everyone else. By Gamescom 2013, they already had over 1 million pre-orders. And at Gamescom 2013, PlayStation revealed the PS4's user interface and announced that the PS4 would be launching on November 15th, 2013 in North America and the 29th in Europe. And on November 15th alone, 1 million PS4s were sold in North America. And I was one of those. It was awesome. I skipped theater rehearsal to wait in line, and it's a memory I'll never forget. Um, Battlefield 4 was the first game I played on it. Meanwhile, overseas on launch date, the PS4 sold over a quarter of a million consoles within 48 hours in the UK alone. By the end of the year, over 4 million PS4s had been sold. It was a legend in the making. A beautiful start to, in my opinion, one of the greatest consoles ever made. Things were destined to be different over at Xbox, but you wouldn't have guessed it in 2008. The Xbox 360 was absolutely pummeling the PS3 in terms of sales, and had legendary software like Halo 3, Gears of War, Mass Effect, Dead Rising, and Fable 2. For all intents and purposes, the Xbox 360 was the console that defined the last console generation, not the PS3. And while I personally think the PS3 would eventually have better software, it was clear that, optics-wise, the Xbox was king. And if you were to pull someone off the street in 2008 and ask them if they preferred PS3 or Xbox 360, I'm guessing they'd probably pick the Xbox 360. This is the mentality of Microsoft going into the next generation of Xbox. They were the kings, but where do you go when you're already on top? That was the question Xbox had to ask themselves. What do you innovate on or add when you're the one setting the benchmark? I think one of the reasons the PS4 was so good was because they had to both learn from their failures and from what their competitors were doing. But Xbox had to do neither of those things. Nintendo was off doing their own thing and the PS3 was not doing well. 
So all you can do is start to form an architecture you could add on to later, depending on the shape of the world and entertainment at the time. Substantial rumors of a potential Xbox 720 began as early as 2011, later referred to as codenamed Durango after dev kits began to ship out to developers in 2012. Even before the official announcement of the new Xbox, the hardware specs were leaked and reported on. It too would feature an AMD Jaguar APU, just like the PS4, but with 1.3 teraflops instead of 1.8, which might seem like a minuscule difference compared to its PlayStation counterpart, but this would actually be a huge point of contention later on, when certain software would run at 1080p resolution on PS4 and only 900p on Xbox One. But before the specs were officially revealed, that info wasn't known. As for the new Xbox's controller, nothing would significantly change, just iterations on an already great controller. A more ergonomic design, textured thumbsticks, and an actual D-pad, and even small rumble motors in the triggers that allowed for vibration, a feature few games would use, but it was still a nice touch when playing games like Halo and Forza. But one sign of Microsoft's misled vision for their next Xbox was found in the form of their new Kinect. The Kinect began as an Xbox 360 accessory in direct response to the motion gaming trend started by the Nintendo Wii, but Microsoft wanted to take it a step further for their next Xbox. This new Kinect wouldn't just allow for motion gaming, but also voice commands for the console, facial recognition, QR scanning for Xbox Marketplace cards, and it could even detect blood flow and heart rate, which was pointless for gaming, but that would actually become a pretty valuable tool in hospitals. But for the Xbox One, the Kinect wouldn't just be an optional accessory. Launch models would make the Kinect 2.0 an integral part of the system, even going so far as requiring it to always be plugged in for the Xbox to even function. This would be yet another huge point of contention with the Xbox One. Leading up to the Xbox One's reveal in 2013, rumors began to circulate about the new console, and not the good kind. There were rumors that the next Xbox would not only require players to always be online, but that it also wouldn't allow players to play used copies of games through something called DRM, Digital Rights Management. DRM essentially requires players to always be online in order to even play the game at all, something that plagued the launches of games like Blizzard's Diablo 3 and EA's SimCity. It was something that was not only inconvenient, but it also severely limited used game sales, with, at the time, some games even including extra content via a one-time code with new copies of a game. DRM was a dirty word at that time, and still is, and here Xbox was going in on it. The rumor suggested that players could play games offline, but the Xbox would require them to check in every now and then to prove that they own the rights to the game they're playing. And if you wanted to lend your copy of a game to somebody, you would have to go through an arduous online authentication system and maybe even pay a fee instead of, you know, just handing your disc over for a week. It was a peek at a seemingly dystopian future of gaming, and it wasn't helped by the fact that Microsoft would never confirm or deny these rumors, and that Microsoft employees seemed to be in favor of DRM, assuming the rumors were true, of course. Don Matrick, the president of interactive entertainment business at Microsoft, even stoked this fire as well later on by saying, Fortunately, we have a product for people who aren't able to get some form of connectivity. It's called Xbox 360. Yeah, he actually said that at E3. Microsoft was just giving everyone plenty of ammo to work with. In hindsight, with the Xbox we have today, it's almost weird looking back at a time when they were just blowing it. The Xbox One was revealed on May 21st, 2013, and the reveal wasn't entirely exciting. An alarming amount of time was spent on showcasing just why the Xbox One was called the Xbox One. It was an all-in-one entertainment system, one capable of not just playing games, but something that could unite all of your movies, TV, and music in one home device, which wasn't super reassuring if you wanted to buy a, you know, video game console. The reveal was subject to an endless amount of internet scrutiny due to Microsoft's tone deafness to what gamers actually wanted. 
TV, TV, watch TV, 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 TV remote, TV experience, TV, 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 sports TV, TV, TV. This is another reason why the PS4 succeeded where the Xbox One failed. PlayStation told gamers exactly what they wanted to hear after Xbox seemed to be treating gaming as one piece of a larger puzzle rather than the primary focus. It's ironic that a console that was built to always be connected to the internet was being produced by a company so disconnected from reality. And E3 wasn't much better. Microsoft tried to reassure everyone that the Xbox One was still all about the games by featuring demos and trailers for esteemed franchises like Metal Gear Solid, The Witcher, Dead Rising, and even a teaser for a new Halo game, and a very, very awkward demo for Battlefield 4 played with tech issues. It was also at E3 2013 where they revealed the Xbox One would cost $499 in North America, and where Xbox seemed to confirm everyone's fears about DRM. They released a blog post saying you can only play games offline for up to 24 hours, and there was no mention of used games at all to dispel the rumors, which, as we know, PlayStation would dunk on later that same day. Just a couple weeks later, Xbox announced plans to, you know, not do that, but the damage had been done to their reputation. People made it loud and clear that wasn't the direction they wanted gaming to go, and it was a lesson Xbox had to learn the very hard way. Microsoft was now the anti-consumer company, and that's an image that would take years of hard work to change. Just one month after E3, Don Matrick left Microsoft to become CEO of Zynga, the creators of Farmville and Words with Friends, which says a lot about the guy when you think about it. Don Matrick's position was replaced and even renamed to head of Xbox by Phil Spencer in 2014, who had a mountain of work in front of him. It was like a giant dog laid a huge turd right in front of him, and now it was his job to clean it all up. Thanks, Don. And on a personal note, I think Phil Spencer has done a fantastic job, especially considering what he had to deal with. The Xbox One launched on November 22nd, 2013 with a launch lineup that included Dead Rising 3, Forza Motorsport 5, Rise Son of Rome, Zoo Tycoon, and Local Cycle, and Fighter Within, a Kinect game. The console itself was actually received pretty well, all things considered, and it sold pretty well at launch. It actually matched the PS4's 1 million sales figure within 24 hours, but by the end of the year, the PlayStation 4 already had 1 million more consoles sold than the Xbox One. Both consoles performed similarly in the excitement around launch, but after a few months, the PS4 was already running laps around the Xbox. For added context, as of today, the PS4 has sold over 106 million systems, and the Xbox One has sold about half that. It's worth noting though, the Xbox One is still a success by typical standards. It just goes to show just how successful the PS4 is by comparison. Since 2013, all three companies have either created revised or upgraded versions of their consoles or entirely new consoles. Xbox released the Xbox One S and One X, both of which are more powerful versions of the Xbox One capable of 4K and HDR, and no Kinect required. Xbox have also put a ton of emphasis on PC gaming and Xbox Game Pass, a subscription service a la Netflix that allows players to play a rotating list of games at their leisure. PlayStation revised the PS4 with the PS4 Slim and countered the Xbox One S and X with the PS4 Pro, a PS4 capable of 4K HDR gaming. There was also PSVR, a custom-made VR headset made for the PS4. PlayStation didn't really need to make as many drastic moves as Xbox did throughout this generation, but their contributions to gaming are still remarkable through their incredible list of software like God of War, Spider-Man, The Last of Us Part II, Ghost of Tsushima, and more. Nintendo underwent the biggest change during the 8th console generation though. They've since discontinued the Wii U following abysmal sales and launched a fantastic console in the form of the Nintendo Switch, a home console that can also be a portable console, 
a world-first hybrid console. The hardware is remarkable, and so is the software. The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild was a revolutionary game, and that's not even mentioning instant classics like Super Mario Odyssey and Fire Emblem Three Houses. Nintendo has been killing it since 2017, again proving that video game companies are at their best when learning from their own mistakes. And there's so much more. There's the EA Battlefront 2 debacle, Xbox acquiring Bethesda, Overwatch and loot boxes, the birth of the Game Awards, mass reports of crunch and toxic work culture. The events of the 8th console generation could make for an endless list of news. But I hope that, from what I've covered here, you have some idea of the sheer amount of work that goes into making a new console, and that you learn something about this generation before we leave it. One of my favorite tidbits is that the Wii U is called Project Cafe not because they wanted to create a social experience, but because it used an espresso CPU and a latte GPU. I honestly had no idea. So if I learned something from writing this podcast, I can bet that you definitely learned something from listening to it. And I hope you learned something from these past 10 episodes of Random Access Memories. I had a blast making this show, but it's time for it to end. For now, of course. This was, of course, the season one finale. It was a solid 10 episode run. I learned a ton, not just about the games, but about the entire process of writing and producing a podcast like this. I'll be back someday with an even better Random Access Memories. I also want to thank each and every person who has listened to the show and left a comment or whatever. I sincerely appreciate the support and feedback. But for now, thank you so, so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Random Access Memories, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want more, check out our previous episodes and or subscribe to the show on the podcast platform of your choice. This podcast was produced by Ron's Pies on YouTube, so please check the channel out, subscribe, and share the show. You can follow me on Twitter at WadeLikesPie and Keegan at Key underscore Gan underscore Gin. See you next time.